Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we get together and study the words of the Buddha. We're using this book series, The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. We're in volume four and we're finishing that up today and we're going to be moving into volume five next week which is quite interesting because volume five is all about the first stage of enlightenment. And as we end our class today, I'll give you guys some guidance on studying that book because this is one of the more challenging books in the entire book series. And it's important that you spend time to really go through that book in a nice kind of methodical way, maybe even differently than what you've been looking at the previous books because there are some such important teachings throughout the entire book series, but this book in particular, there's some teachings that you're really going to need to spend some time to wrap your mind around, and I would like to give you guys a bit of guidance on that at the end of class to help you move in that direction to study volume five. So it's really wonderful that we're getting to this point in our program where we're actually going to be diving into the first stage of enlightenment stream entry, and we're going to be spending five weeks just devoted to studying all about stream entry, which is an important milestone on your journey to enlightenment. So I'd like to welcome all of you for today's class. We're going to be studying chapters 21 through 31 right after we do our meditation together. So if you would like to join for meditation, if this is your first time joining us, we'll do meditation just for a brief period. And then afterwards, we're going to dive into the words of the Buddha, studying chapters 21 through 31 of volume four. And if you haven't seen these books yet or you haven't read them, it's okay because they're available for free. And we're going to be displaying them during our class today. So if you need these books, we'll share some links in Facebook, YouTube, and Zoom so you know where to actually access the books. And you can download them for free. You can take them and go get it printed, or you can order a printed copy yourself. And that way you'll have the books to be able to go along and study on your own throughout the week. And then we get together like this to study as a group. But we start off with this brief little meditation just to prepare the mind for the training, for the learning, for the class to really be able to absorb the teachings and then retain them for longer and longer periods of time. So I'd like to welcome you either to join just for the meditation or stick around after the meditation to actually learn the teachings of the Buddha because as you learn with the words of the Buddha, then you're able to truly understand what he actually taught and then build up your practice and develop your practice so that you can move towards this enlightened mental state. 
So if you like to go ahead and take a position in the seated position for meditation, I usually don't give too much guidance in this class for meditation because people that join this class tend to be a little bit further along in their meditation practice. But the class that I teach on Sunday and Wednesday, that's where I start people out and really build up their practice from there. So if you'd like to just go ahead and take your position for meditation, close the eyes, and what you're gonna end up doing is just breathing in through the nose and out through the nose, focusing the mind on the breath, cutting off the thoughts. Anytime thoughts come to the mind, you just cut those off and come back to the breath. So we'll do some chanting to ease into meditation and then just I'll leave you on your own for meditation today to just focus on the breath, cut off the thoughts, and come back to the breath.
I'd like to just welcome any of you guys that have joined us since we started meditating. Welcome to the class. We're going to be in volume four today, which is titled Exploring the Path to Enlightenment, volume four. We're going to be studying chapters 21 through 31, which actually completes this book. And the way that we do our classes is we have moderators, Manal and Basum, who will be sure that we're moving forward in our class. There's volunteers who will read each individual chapter. I will then teach at the end of the chapter, just kind of helping you to understand some of the key aspects of the teaching from the Buddha and then open up to any questions that you guys might have. For those of you guys that have downloaded these books or you've got printed copy of these books, you know that in addition to the words of the Buddha, 
you have explanations from me there so that you can study and learn the words of the Buddha and the words that I'm sharing related to that chapter. These classes are a way to just kind of highlight a couple aspects of each chapter and mainly provide opportunities for you guys to ask any questions because this is very much like an independent study program, like a PhD program where you're independently studying on your own and you're just coming to the teacher for guidance. Where the group learning program that's on Sunday and Wednesday, there's much more guidance. There's a real structure to that, those classes and that program. And I'm really spending a lot of time to teach and be sure the students understand the teachings along the way. Where this class, this program is more about providing you an opportunity to ask questions that you've come up with as part of your independent study. And maybe you're trying to understand how to apply these to your actual practice and how you apply them in daily life. And that's what these classes are all about. So welcome to all of you. If you're joining us on Facebook, YouTube, Zoom, if you're listening on the podcast or any of the other places where we live stream this too, I'd like to welcome all of you and just turn over the class to all of you and specifically the moderators so that we can go through and actually learn the words of the Buddha through our class today. Awaiting his time, mindful and clearly comprehending. Monks, a monk should await his time, mindful and clearly comprehending. This is my instruction to you. And how monks is a monk mindful? Here, monks, a monk resides reflecting on the body in the body, dedicated, clearly comprehending, mindful, having put away grieving and displeasure in regard to the world. He resides reflecting on feelings and feelings. Mind and mind, mental objects and mental objects, dedicated, clearly comprehending, mindful, having put away craving and displeasure in regard to the world. It is in such a way that a monk is mindful. And how monks does a monk subsides clear comprehension? Here monks, a monk is one who acts with clear comprehension when going forward and returning, when looking ahead and looking aside, when drawing in and extending the limbs, when wearing his robes and carrying his outer robe and bowl, when eating, drinking, chewing his food and tasting, when defecating and urinating, when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, walking up, speaking, and keeping silent. It is in such a way that the monk exercises clear comprehension. The monk should awake his mind his time mindful and clearly comprehending. This is my instruction to you. Monks, while a monk resides thus, mindful and clearly comprehending, diligent, dedicated, and determined, if there arises in him a pleasant feeling, he understands thus, there has arisen in me a pleasant feeling. Now, that is dependent, not, indep not independent. Dependent for what? Dependent on this very body, but this body is impermanent, conditioned, dependently arisen. So, when the pleasant feeling has arisen in dependence on a body that is impermanent, conditioned, dependent, dependently arisen, how could it be permanent? He resides reflecting on impermanence in the body and in pleasant feelings. He resides reflecting on vanishing, reflecting on fading away reflecting on elimination, reflecting on letting go. As he resides thus, 
the underlying tendency to crave in regard to the body and in regard to pleasant feelings is abandoned by him. If he feels a pleasant feeling, he understands it is impermanent. He understands it is not here too. He understands it is not excited in. If he feels a painful feeling, he understands it is impermanent. He understands it is not healed too. He understands it is not excited in. If he feels a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he understands it is impermanent. He understands it is not healed too. He understands it is not excited in. If he feels a pleasant feeling, he feels it without holding on to. If he feels a painful feeling, he feels it without holding on to it. If he feels a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he feels it without holding on to it. When he feels a pleasant terminating with the body, he understands I feel a feeling terminating with the body. When he feels a feeling terminating with life, he understands I feel a feeling terminating with life. He understands with the breakup of the body, following the exhaustion of life, all that is felt not being excited then will become cool right here. Just as monks on oil land burns in dependence on the oil and the wick, and with the exhaustion of the oil and the wick, it is exhausted through lack of fuel. So too monks, when a monk feels a feeling terminating with the body, terminating with life, he understands with the breakup of the body, Following the exhaustion of life, all that is built, not being excited in, will become cool right here. All right. Thank you, Basim. So this is the Buddha combining several teachings in one that he talks about in other places, but he's kind of discussing it in a different point of view, a different perspective, and using some different words. If you remember from the group learning program and from other classes that I teach, the Eightfold Path is the core and central teaching of the Buddha. And then other teachings plug into this Eightfold Path in order to help you understand the path to enlightenment. This path of the Eightfold Path starts with right view, goes to right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And they're broken down into three subcategories of wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. It's right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration that is the mental discipline. This is how you train the mind to be able to control the mind. And the other parts, they all kind of interweave and interconnected with each other. One helps you to practice the other. But this particular teaching, the Buddha is talking about right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. He's mainly talking about right mindfulness and right concentration, but let me help you see what he's talking about because in the Eightfold Path, he talks about the teachings of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration to a certain level of depth. And then this particular teaching is going down into it a little bit deeper. And then he has other teachings where he goes into it even deeper and deeper and deeper. So here he starts off saying, a monk or you can think of that as a student, a student should await his time mindful and clearly comprehending. Mindful is having awareness of mind. In particular, those four foundations of mindfulness, understanding when you experience bodily sensations associated with discontentedness, 
understanding when you experience the feelings themselves, which come into the mind, understanding the condition of the mind and understanding any mental objects, being aware of those, having awareness of mind. This is mindful or mindfulness. Clearly comprehending is right concentration, having clear comprehension and being able to see very clearly and not having all this clutter in the mind. Of course, when the mind is unenlightened, there's going to be clutter in the mind. But your goal through training with the entire Eightfold Path to include meditation and other aspects of these teachings is to clear out more and more of this clutter so that you can get to this clear comprehension or this right concentration. And mindfulness and right concentration really go hand in hand together as well as right effort because they're part of that mental discipline part of the Eightfold Path. So here the Buddha says, and how monks is a monk mindful? This is where he talks about the four foundations of mindfulness. He says, reflecting on the body and body, feelings and feelings, mind and mind, mental objects and mental objects. He's reminding people, okay, what is mindfulness? Mindfulness is the four foundations of mindfulness. And you develop this ability to have awareness of mind through your meditation but then also in your daily life. And that's what the Buddha is talking about here. When he talks about meditation, he talks about developing mindfulness in meditation. But what he's talking about here is he's talking about applying right mindfulness in daily life, that when you're out and about and you're doing things, he's saying, be aware of the mind, be aware of these bodily sensations, these feelings, the condition of the mind and mental objects. He's saying being dedicated, right? Being dedicated to having this mindfulness, this awareness of mind, clearly comprehending, mindful, having put aside or put away, craving and dis displeasure in regard to the world. So this is when you look out in the world that you don't have this displeasure, this complaining, negative, pessimistic view of the world. Whereas if you're craving for things to be a certain way in the world, then you're going to have this displeasure with how things are done in the world and realizing that things are just done in the world the way that they're done in the world and everybody's making their own individual decisions. But having this pessimistic view or this negative perspective isn't going to help your mind to have this clear comprehension if you go around being disgruntled about things aren't happening in the world the way that you want them to happen. So here the Buddha says it is in this way that a monk is mindful, you know, getting rid of craving, in displeasure in regard to the world and being aware of the mind and these four foundations of mindfulness. Then he says, okay, exercise clear comprehension. This is when he says going forward and going back, looking ahead, looking to the side, drawing in the limbs, extending the limbs. He goes through this whole list of daily activities that you might do, even things like chewing food, urinating, defecating, all these different things. He's saying, okay, do this with clear comprehension. Be sure that you have concentration. Put some intention and some deliberate action behind your movements, behind your bodily movements and your mental activity. Be sure you're very deliberate and intentional. Because if you practice that first part where he's saying have awareness of mind, now as you're going about your day and moving about the world, you can do it with clear comprehension, with concentration, and you're moving about the world, just focusing on one thing at a time, having singleness of mind. So when you're chewing food, just chew the food. But if you're chewing the food, 
you're on the phone, you're on the computer, you're on the iPad, you're thinking about what you're going to do tomorrow. This is too many things for the mind to try to focus on and your mind is going to rapidly cycle through all of these things. So when you're sitting down to eat, you just sit down and eat. If you're going to watch TV, you watch TV. But eating and watching TV at the same time, it's causing the mind to have to rapidly switch between these things. So here, with in order to get to clear comprehension and exercise that right concentration, you need to train the mind to be single-threaded or having singleness of mind where you're just doing one thing at a time. And then the Buddha talks about awaiting his time mindful and clearly comprehending, putting these things together, where he's now saying, okay, if you experience a pleasant feeling arise, then this is dependent. He's saying it's dependent. He doesn't use the words here, but it's dependent on craving. It's dependent on craving, desire, attachment. If a pleasant feeling arises in the mind, it's dependent, not independent, is what he's saying right here. And he goes on and he says, dependent on what? And he talks about being dependent on this very body, right? But this is where he's talking about pleasant feelings arising and observing the bodily sensations. The pleasant feelings are coming from craving, desire, attachment, as he makes very clear in all of his other teachings. But here he's cluing you into mindfulness and being aware of those bodily sensations. Because when you're aware of the bodily sensations that are occurring as pleasant feelings are arising, then you can cut that off and let that go. And that's what he's sharing with you here is being sure that you pay attention to the body and the bodily sensations associated with pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Because if you can cut off the discontentedness there and let it go, then it will never become feelings in the mind and actually pollute the mind to affect the condition of the mind or form mental objects. So the Buddha says right here that reflecting on elimination, reflecting on letting go, this is what you need to do as the pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant are arising, then you need to train the mind to let those go. He says, as he resides thus, the underlying tendency to crave in regard to the body and in regard to pleasant feelings is abandoned. So if you can cut off and let go of these bodily sensations that are occurring as pleasant feelings are starting to arise, then you can get to the point where you're eliminating craving and you won't have these conditioned pleasant feelings. You won't have these conditioned painful feelings, these conditioned feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, those will all be abandoned and eliminated because craving will be abandoned and eliminated. You won't see this discontentedness arising anymore. And now he just goes through in these three statements, making sure that a student understands that these discontent feelings of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant are impermanent, that they're not permanent and you shouldn't excite in these discontent feelings. Don't take excitement in them. And then he goes in further and he says, okay, when the pleasant feelings arise, he feels it. You feel the pleasant feelings starting to arise, but without holding on to it. You don't allow the mind to hold on to that happiness, that excitement, that thrill, that euphoria that is starting to arise in the body. Rather than hold on to it, you let it go. You cut it off and let it go. 
that's where he says down here, not just with pleasant feelings, but he says it with painful feelings and neither painful nor pleasant feelings. He feels those feelings because the mind is unenlightened. You're going to feel those feelings without holding on to it. So let it go. That's where he talks here. He says, when he feels a feeling terminating with the body, he understands, I feel it terminating with the body. So when you feel those bodily sensations arising and you make an active effort to apply right effort to cut that off and let it go, then this is what you're doing in order to terminate the feeling. You're terminating that discontentedness from arising. And he goes into another part here where he says, you know, when he feels a feeling terminating with life, you know, he's talking about kind of getting to the end of life and that you're perhaps holding on to this physical body or holding on to life. He's saying, okay, he understands that I have this feeling terminating with life, but yet you shouldn't hold on to that either because with the breakup of the body, following the exhaustion of life, all that is felt and not excited in, you know, don't take excitement in the things that you're feeling. That's conditioned, pleasant feelings. And then all becomes cool right here, meaning we extinguish these pleasant feelings, these painful feelings, these feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So the mind no longer has these conditioned feelings. You can eliminate the pollution from the mind and then experience that peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, which is the enlightened mind. And then he just gives a little bit of an analogy here. He says an oil lamp that burns in dependency on oil in the wick with the exhaustion of the oil and wick, it is extinguished. So the fire is extinguished because there's no fuel. Craving, desire, attachment is the fuel that causes rebirth, but it's also what's causing this discontentedness. So when you cut off the arising pleasant feelings, when you're observing the bodily sensations, you're working to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. And when that fuel no longer exists, then you won't experience the discontentedness arising. So with the elimination of this craving, desire, attachment, the exhaustion of this fuel, then there's going to be this extinguishing of the discontentedness gradually over time. And that's what he's discussing here. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Let's go to Manel for Facebook questions. Yes, we have a question from Amina on Facebook. With the breakup of the body following the exhaustion of life, all that is felt not being excited and will become cool right here. Should the mind take this lesson, the idea that if all conditioned things are impermanent, like the very life we are experiencing, then that should make it easier to let go of attachments because eventually that to which we are attaching will be gone and will become cool right here like the chapter teaches. Exactly. And that's what a lot of the chapters are this week is making sure that you understand impermanence. Because if you understand that all of these conditioned things, all that arises is going to change and fade away, and you realize that what the unenlightened mind is doing is trying to hold on to these things, wanting them to be permanent, and that's what's causing all these painful feelings in the mind, then with that wisdom, the mind's like, I'm not interested in feeling those painful feelings. So since I realize it's being caused by me holding on to all these things, and I know that these things are impermanent, I can't hold on to them. There's no way I can keep any of this stuff permanently. 
So why put myself through that? Why continue to hold on to these things when it's just causing my own discontentedness? So with that wisdom, like what you're saying, you can then be incentivized. You can incentivize your own mind because now you've got this wisdom of these natural laws and you realize I'm just causing my own discontentedness because I keep holding on craving permanence, but yet all this stuff is impermanent. Why would I hold on? Why would I keep trying to hold on? Because nothing's permanent in terms of all this material stuff. Why keep holding on to it? So yes, Amina, you're right on there that this wisdom is helping you to realize to stop clinging, stop craving, stop holding on. Well, they, sometimes when waking up after having a dream, the mind is not concentrated, not focused. It's, it's more struggling to keep, to bring the mind again back into the present moment. Any advice for such cases? Yeah, when you're sleeping, you know, there's that transitionary period, right? Where you're really deep in sleep and then you kind of wake up. I don't suggest you just bolt out of bed and just get up out of bed and, and go running somewhere, you know, and, and go about your day like boom, 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 boom. I got to get my list done. I've got this long to-do list. Go, 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 go. That's not the way to approach your day. You should wake up and you're kind of slowly regaining consciousness. You slowly start to wake up the eyes and you might need to lay in bed for 5, 10, 15 minutes and kind of regain your thoughts and your composure. This is completely fine. Some people make it out like you're maybe lazy if you lay in bed for 5, 10 or 15 minutes and kind of, you know, open your eyes, clear out your eyes, kind of gather your thoughts. What am I kind of looking to do today? What is my approach to today? What are some of the things that I'm interested in accomplishing? So if you lay in bed for a little bit and you need to kind of gather your thoughts, particularly after a dream and kind of bring it back to reality and realize that was just a dream, that's completely fine. You know, don't feel like you have to be on this hamster wheel or this spinning wheel where you're just go, 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 go all the time. It's important to take a little bit of time in the morning and kind of settle into your day and kind of prepare the mind for the day. So that's what I would do if I was you. I do that even when I don't dream is I'm just kind of gradually waking up. I will sometimes lay in bed for 10, 15, 20 minutes and just kind of think through the things from the previous day of what transpired, you know, what I'm looking to do today. And I don't make a real hard, fast list of what I'm going to do today, but I have a general idea of what I'm looking to do. And then as my day progresses, I'm not holding on to any one particular task and trying to forcefully get through this list of things. I just have this general idea of the direction I'm working towards. And if things happen that are off the list, or if I don't get anything done on the list, I'm completely fine with that because I know in the present moment, in that day, I'm going to be addressing whatever I need to address. So I might wake up in the morning with the idea that, okay, I'm going to write 10 chapters in one of these books, and that's my plan. But as I wake up, I take a shower, I eat breakfast, I might start getting a bunch of private messages from students that need help. So rather than shut that down just to be able to hold on and write these 10 chapters, I'm not clinging to the 10 chapters. So what's most important in that moment is the students are asking questions. So let me address their questions and give them the help they need. And if I've got time after this, then I'll maybe focus on some of the 
chapters in the book. And if I don't get to them, that's fine. If I do get to them, that's fine. So when you're not clinging to anything, then when you wake up in the morning and you kind of have your plan of what you'd like to accomplish in the day, you can have that general plan, but then understand that that plan is impermanent and you need it to be flexible and don't be so rigid about what it is that you're planning to do that day. Just keep it as a general objective, a general goal, a general interest, and then just address whatever aspects of your day that need to be addressed in order to bring the most positive and wholesome outcomes to your life. Well, talking about that, uh, uh, do you think it's a good idea to use the, the dream, uh, analyze it as a way to identify the cravings in the mind? There's some amount of looking at your dreams that could probably be helpful for you in terms of like what you're saying, Basim. Like if you're having regular, consistent dreams about things, then there's probably cravings that are causing that in the mind. And that can be helpful for you to eliminate craving, right? Because that's the whole goal. That would be a good use of maybe reflecting on the dream that you had. Like if you keep having dreams about death, then maybe the mind is scared to die. Maybe it's fearful to die and you can uh, know that and then you can work through that. But what you shouldn't do with dreams is try to overanalyze them or become obsessive about them or go out and try to get dream analyzers to tell you what your dreams mean or ask all your friends, you know, what does this mean? What does this mean? Because if you're dreaming, you're the one that knows the dream. You're the one that knows your life. You're the one that knows what's happening in your life. And if you can glean some insight and benefit from the dream, then okay, do that. But don't do it as like, you know, what's this mysterious, magical, mystical thing that I need to figure out about my dream? That's going to make the mind more diluted. But if you use the dream in order to figure out your cravings and your anger and your ignorance and you're working on eradicating that stuff, that's what's going to move your practice forward. All right, let's go to the next chapter. Nothing is worth adhering to. Then a certain monk approached the perfectly enlightened one and said to him, Venerable sir, is there one thing through the abandoning of which ignorance is abandoned by a monk and true wisdom arises? There is one thing, monk, through the abandoning of which ignorance is abandoned by a monk and a true wisdom arises. And what is that one thing, Venerable sir? Ignorance, monk, is that one thing through the abandoning of which ignorance is abandoned by a monk and a true wisdom arises. But venerable sir, how should a monk know? How should he see for ignorance to be abandoned by him and true wisdom to arise? Here, monk, a monk has heard, nothing is worth adhering to. When a monk has heard, nothing is worth adhering to. He directly knows everything. Having directly known everything, he fully understands everything. Having fully understood everything, he sees all signs differently. He sees the eye differently. He sees forms differently. He sees eye consciousness differently. He sees eye contact differently. And whatever feeling arises with eye contact as condition, experiencing pleasure, pain, or as neither painful nor pleasant, that too he sees differently. He sees the ear differently. He sees sounds differently. He sees ear consciousness differently. He sees ear contact differently, and whatever feeling arises with ear contact as condition, experiencing pleasure, pain, or as neither painful nor pleasant, that too he sees differently. He sees the nose differently, he sees odors differently, he sees nose consciousness differently. 
He sees nose contact differently, and whatever feeling arises with nose contact as condition, experiencing pleasure, pain, or as neither painful nor pleasant, that too he sees differently. He sees the tongue differently. He sees flavors differently. He sees tongue consciousness differently. He sees tongue contact differently, and whatever feeling arises with tongue contact as condition, experiencing pleasure, pain, or as neither painful nor pleasant, that too he sees differently. He sees the body differently. He sees physical objects differently. He sees body consciousness differently. He sees body contact differently. And whatever feeling arises with body contact as condition, experiencing pleasure, pain, or neither painful nor pleasant, that too he sees differently. He sees the mind differently. He sees mental objects differently. He sees mind consciousness differently. He sees mind contact differently. And whatever feeling arises with mind contact as condition, experiencing pleasure, pain, or as neither painful nor pleasant, that too he sees differently. When monk, a monk knows and sees thus, ignorance is abandoned by him and true wisdom arises. Thank you, Manal. This is exactly what Amina just asked the question about. What the Buddha is helping you to see is that none of this stuff is worth adhering to or holding on to. And the question here that was asked of the Buddha is, you know, how do you abandon this ignorance, this unknowing of true reality, this lack of wisdom of not understanding impermanence? How do you abandon it? Right. So the Buddha is saying, OK, the way you abandon ignorance is through wisdom, is arising this true wisdom and being able to see that nothing is worth adhering to. When you understand that nothing's worth adhering to, the Buddha is saying, okay, you know everything. Okay, you're not going to really know everything. Like you won't know how to fly an airplane or, you know, you won't know how to bake a cake necessarily just because you understand impermanence and you understand not to hold on to things. But what he's saying is this is the real beginning. This is where your path really starts. This is why when I have a new student start to learn with me, I always start with the three universal truths pretty much and start with that first universal truth of impermanence because if you don't understand impermanence anything else that the buddha teaches you you're not going to understand because the whole basis of why the mind is experiencing discontentedness is because it craves permanence but yet all these things are impermanent so the buddha is saying the way you eliminate ignorance is you understand this wisdom that all of these things are impermanent and nothing's worth holding on to because it's just going to cause discontentedness. So it's not worth it. So you're still going to have a computer. You're still going to have a car. You're still going to have a job. You're still going to have clothes. But don't hold on to it mentally where there's this craving for permanence. So if you have a shirt and you notice it comes out of the laundry ripped, instead of being angry or upset, ah, impermanence. It makes complete sense. Of course it's ripped. When you put it in the washing machine, you put it in nicely, you try to take care of it, but ultimately you know these clothes are going to rip, they're going to fade, they're going to tear, they're going to get old, you can't keep them permanently. But if the mind is craving permanence and it's holding on, when that ripped piece of clothing comes out of the laundry, the mind's like, oh my goodness, and it reacts negatively and it gets angry. But the Buddha is saying nothing's worth holding on to. And when you know that and you understand impermanence, then you know everything. Just let go of all of these things. And that's where the Buddha is saying, okay, you're going to see things differently. You're going to look at hearing and odors and flavors and physical objects that you come in contact with, like a shirt. 
and things that you experience in the mind, you're going to look at these things differently when you understand impermanence, that you're no longer clinging and holding on to them, but instead you're taking care of the things that are in your life. You understand these things are impermanent. You're trying to not make them impermanent because they already are impermanent. You try to take care of the things that you acquire, but ultimately at the end of the day, they're all impermanent. So they're all going to fade away. They're all going to be eliminated at some point. So no reason to allow that impermanence to shake up our mind. So when we see impermanence, oh, okay, impermanence. Someone's disagreeing with me. That makes sense. They disagree with me. Oh, the shirt came out ripped. That makes sense. That's impermanence. Oh, I got a flat tire in the car. That makes sense. That's impermanence. At my job, they're not paying me today. They're going to pay me tomorrow. That makes sense. That's impermanence. No reason to get angry about that. They weren't able to get the checks cleared out of the bank today. They say they're going to do it tomorrow. I've never had any trouble with my company before. They're honest. They're trustworthy. They'll pay me tomorrow. Rather than get angry and hostile, just be patient and understand this is impermanence. So when you gain that wisdom, then you look at the world in a completely different way. Everything around you that's happening is just all this impermanence. And the mind's going to be shaken up. Anytime it's craving permanence, it's going to get shaken up. And you've just got to remind yourself, no, 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 no. This is impermanence. No reason to hold on to anything here. Nothing is worth adhering to. So any questions on this chapter? No question, Mr. Teacher. All right. Let's go to chapter 23. No one can see as impermanent. Then a certain monk approached the perfectly enlightened one and said to him, Honorable Sayer, is there one thing through the abandoning of which ignorance and knowing of true reality is abandoned by a monk and true wisdom arises? Monk, when a monk knows and sees the eye as impermanent, ignorance and knowing of true reality is abandoned by him and true wisdom arises. When he knows and sees forms are, are impermanent, when he knows and sees as impermanent whatever feeling arises with eye contact as condition, ignorance is abandoned by him and true wisdom arises. Monk, when a monk knows and sees the ear as impermanent, ignorance and knowing of true reality is abandoned by him and true wisdom arises. When he, when he knows and sees sounds as impermanent, when he knows and sees as impermanent, whatever feeling arises with ear contact as condition, ignorance is abandoned by him, and true wisdom arises. Monk. When a monk knows and sees the nose as impermanent, ignorance and knowing of true reality is abandoned by him, and true wisdom arises. When he knows and sees odors as impermanent, when he knows and sees as impermanent, whatever feeling arises with nose contact as condition, ignorance is abandoned by him, and true wisdom arises. Monk. When a monk knows and sees the tongue as impermanent, ignorance and knowing the true reality is abandoned by him, and true wisdom arises. When he knows and sees devils as impermanent, when he knows and sees as impermanent, whatever feeling arises with tongue contact as condition, Ignorance is abandoned by him, and true wisdom arises. Monk. When a monk knows and sees the body as impermanent, ignorance and knowing of true reality is abandoned by him, 
and true wisdom arises. When he knows and sees physical objects as impermanent, when he knows and sees as impermanent, whatever feeling arises with the body contact as condition, ignorance is abandoned by him, and true wisdom arises. Monk, when a monk knows and sees the mind as impermanent, ignorance and knowing of true reality is abandoned by him, and true wisdom arises. When he knows and sees mental objects as impermanent, when he knows and sees as impermanent, whatever feeling arises with mind contact as condition, ignorance is abandoned by him, and true wisdom arises. When monk, a monk knows and sees us, ignorance and knowing of true reality is abandoned by him, and true wisdom arises. Okay, thank you, Basum. So here, when the Buddha is teaching like this, you know, as I've shared with you guys in other programs, is we don't believe what the Buddhists teaching. We never believe. What we do is we learn, we reflect, and we practice. So here, when he says, when a monk knows and sees the I as impermanence, ignorance, or the unknowing of true reality is abandoned in him, and true wisdom arises, you don't just believe that. What you do is you say, okay, is the I truly impermanent? Is this I going to be permanent? Yes or no? And you answer that to yourself and you know the truth that no, this I is not permanent. And then you say, okay, well, when I see certain forms with the I, is that permanent or is it impermanent? And you ask yourself, is there anything that you have seen that you keep seeing permanently? No, because everything's always changing as you see things. So when you understand that, the Buddha is saying, okay, then you understand that this I in the forms that the eye see is impermanent. Same thing with the ear and sounds, nose and odors, tongue and flavors, body and physical objects, the mind and mental objects. So now what you do is then the chapter previous to this where nothing is worth adhering to, where when you see something with the eye that is disagreeable and you find displeasure or frustration or anger or irritation and you start noticing that's arising then you cut it off of the bodily sensations that's what you do if you're practicing the four foundations of mindfulness because you understand that this form you're seeing is impermanent and why would you allow the mind to be shaken up by this thing that's impermanent it's not permanent just move past it move beyond it right so you don't feel like you have to hold on to it or if you have a certain odor like say you're walking down the street and you're walking on the sidewalk and this really strong, disagreeable odor comes in and you're like, oh my goodness, that is so horrible, right? Instead of vocalizing these displeasure, this disagreeable, this odor that has brought this disagreeable feeling, this discontentment to the mind, just, hmm, you know in, your, in the mind, okay, that really smells not very nice and it's impermanent and let me just keep walking there's no sense in having to vocalize all this negativity out in the world just realize that it's impermanent no need for it to shake up the mind and just keep walking and you know that eventually that strong odor is going to be gone and same thing not just with disagreeable contact with any of these six sense bases but even agreeable Say you're walking and you smell this amazing cologne or this perfume and you smell it and it's like, oh, wow, that smells really great and the mind wants to hold on to it. Or say you get this brand new car 
and the brand new car has this new car smell and it smells so wonderful getting into this new car but then eventually that new car smell is impermanent so if your mind craves to hold on to that new car smell when that smell's gone after six months or a year your mind's going to be craving that smell again and maybe you're going to want to buy a new car just because of that smell so the buddha saying understand that this is impermanent don't hold on to the agreeable smells and all these other contacts that arise pleasant feelings because the mind's just going to chase after that don't hold on to these disagreeable odors and flavors and all these other aspects of the six sense bases because that's just going to create painful feelings if you hold on to the disagreeable. Instead, just reside in the middle where the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, not being shaken up by this agreeable or disagreeable contact through these six sense bases. Because it's these six sense bases that draw in forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical contact with physical objects in the body in the mind that's how the mind keeps getting shaken up by these agreeable contacts so it arises pleasant feelings in these disagreeable contacts so it arises painful feelings so when you're observing that just let that go don't hold on to it don't allow the mind to grasp it because nothing is worth adhering to just reside in the middle being calm peaceful and content Questions on this chapter? All right. Chapter 24. Yes. I acknowledge for a sick one. One, if fighting do not slip away from a weak and sick one, it can be predicts of him in no long time with the destruction of pain. He will realize for himself with the right knowledge experience. In this very life, the painless liberation of the mind, liberation by wisdom, and having entered upon it, he will reside in it. What five? Here, among reside, reflecting on the unattractiveness of the body, perceiving the dissatisfaction dissatisfaction of food, perceiving non-excitement in the entire world, reflecting on impermanent in the conditioned objects. And he has the perception of that well established internally. If these five things do not slip away from a weak and a sick monk, it can be predicted of him in no longer time with the destruction of the taint, he will rely for himself with the right knowledge experience in this very life, the taintless liberation of the life, of the mind, liberation by wisdom, and having entered upon it, he will reside in it. Thank you, Ali. So we're going to be going through several chapters here that are pointing out the same things. There's these five things that the Buddha says are really important to develop on this path. And this first part where he's saying, you know, okay, if these things don't slip away from the mind, it can be predicted that there will be the destruction of the taints. The taints are the 10 fetters. These are the 10 pollutions of mind that are keeping the mind trapped in the unenlightened state. When you destroy the taints or when you eliminate the 10 fetters, 
through direct experience, through gaining this knowledge and having this experience to learn the teachings from a teacher and then actively work to remove these conditions from the mind, then when you destroy those taints, you eliminate those 10 fetters, in this very life, there's this taintless liberation. Taintless means no pollution. The mind is liberated. It's experiencing enlightenment. There's no longer any discontentedness in the mind. And the way that you do that is you liberate the mind by wisdom. You need to learn the teachings, reflect on them, and practice them. And then as you're doing that, you're not believing the teachings, but instead you're seeing the truth for yourself. You're understanding impermanence, discontentedness, non-self. You're understanding the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, all these other teachings of the Buddha. You're gaining the wisdom of that and you're practicing it to see the truth for yourself. That's how you liberate the mind by wisdom, you're transforming this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality by gaining this wisdom. And then when you liberate the mind by wisdom, when you enter upon enlightenment, once the mind is enlightened because it's removed all this pollution of mind, then you will reside in it. Enlightenment is permanent. Once you eliminate all this pollution of the mind through training, it never comes back again. But you have to actively work to apply effort and dedication and diligence to remove this pollution so that you can enter into the mind experiencing more and more enlightenment so then you can reside in the enlightened mental state, which is permanent. So what are the five things that the Buddha is suggesting here in terms of what a person should develop as part of their path? There's many things that he teaches that we should develop, but these are five things that he's saying, okay, these are important. And there's a reason why he says these five things. The first one is the unattractiveness of the body. By developing the unattractiveness of the body, which you do in meditation and you can do other ways, is essentially seeing the body as it truly is. The way that we see the body is we see it with all these accessories. We see it with this beautiful hair, with the jewelry, with the clothing, with the makeup, with all these other things that we do to the physical body to try to make it look attractive. And therefore, our sensual desire increases. We are interested in having sexual intercourse because we find this physical body of another being attractive. We don't think about the defecation and the urination and the pus and the blood and the tissue and the saliva and all of these other fluids and different things that are coming out of this body, we don't think about those things. Instead, we see the body in this delusionary mental state where we have this delusion or this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality, and we're attracted to the body. Therefore, our central desire for craving sexual intercourse continues. Now, you can move into the first and second stage of enlightenment while still maintaining sexual contact. But if you have a partner, you might need to kind of work together to decide when's the appropriate time for you guys to extinguish your sexual craving. And when you choose to do that, you can develop this unattractiveness of the body, which will help you to now see the body as it truly is and no longer have sensual desire to have sexual contact because that's one of the strongest sensual desires that we have, which is sexual contact. So that's why he has that one in there is to develop the perception in the mind that there's this body is unattractive and seeing the body as it truly is. Then the next thing 
to still work on central desire, and this is through the tongue, is perceiving the dissatisfaction in food. Now, an enlightened being, when they taste food, they're going to know like, okay, this is quite a nice taste, but their mind isn't going to cling to it. They're not going to hold on to it, craving it to be permanent. But what you've got to get to in order to get to that point where you're not holding on to food is realize that food is just there to sustain the health of the body. It's not there to please the tongue and thus please the mind and arise all these pleasant feelings. Because if you have this craving for chocolate cake and you just really want to eat chocolate cake so bad, and then you come home and someone's ate your piece of chocolate cake, now you're going to be angry and frustrated and maybe talk unkind and impolite to somebody in your household. And that's going to produce unwholesome results for you because now you're being unskillful in your speech. So if you understand that this food isn't there to please the senses and please the mind, it's just there to sustain the physical body, then you can develop this perception of dissatisfaction of food. And then you can move beyond craving and holding on and yearning and longing for certain foods. Instead, you can just eat whatever food is presented to you and then your mind can be content rather than craving any particular type of food and you won't find yourself experiencing discontentedness around food and it will help you to eliminate the fetter, the taint, the pollution of mind of central desire. This next one is perceiving non-excitement in the entire world. This is the same thing is that sure there's enjoyable things in the world that we enjoy you know i take my son to go play mini golf or today we went to the library and we did a little bit of shopping around the city those things were enjoyable when we were out doing them but you have to train the mind to understand not to hold on to these things crave these things want these things so badly and somehow this is what's going to bring permanent peacefulness to the mind because going out shopping while it's fun if we buy anything, that's not going to bring the mind this inner fulfillment. The things that we buy are just things that we need. Like today I bought a cable for my phone because my phone cable is getting old and it's starting to fall apart and it's got actually exposed wires. So I just bought it because I needed it, not because I was trying to please the mind or please some kind of craving to arise these pleasant feelings. So if you understand that there's activities that we do in the world and we can find them enjoyable and we can enjoy the time we spend with our family and friends and other people like that. That's fine, but it's when the mind tries to cling to it and hold on to it, yearning for it, that the mind is going to find it to be discontent. And that's where the Buddha goes into this fourth one where he says, okay, all conditioned objects are impermanent. So going shopping with my son today was impermanent. We're not going to be doing that permanently. So therefore, we don't hold on to it and cling to it. We just allow us to go out. We went to the library. We went and had some food. And we did a little bit of shopping and just bought a cable for the phone. Okay, we did that. It's done. It's over. We move on. Because this conditioned object of shopping and spending time together, it arose, it changes, and it fades away and eventually he's going to be in school we're not going to be able to go out shopping together so he needs to go off and go to school rather than clinging and holding on to going shopping with dad or rather than my mind holding on and clinging to my son i feel completely content 
okay, you go to school and do what you need to do over there, right? So not holding on or adhering to any of these things. And then the last thing the Buddha talks about is the perception of death. One of the most challenging things for the mind is your own death and coming to terms with that and realizing that you can't avoid that. You're going to die at some point. This physical body is going to die. It's not permanent. It's a conditioned object. So rather than craving and clinging and holding on to all these things in the world, instead realize that none of this stuff is permanent and you need to develop this perception of death that at some point this physical body is going to die and the mind and the body are going to separate during that time as you're leaning towards death if you're trying to hold on to all these things in the world the mind's going to be very scared and fearful of death and it's going to have a lot of displeasure at the time of death where if you've let go of all of these things, as you get closer and closer to death, you just understand that it's part of the universal truth of impermanence. It's part of these natural laws of existence that this physical body is going to die. And the way that you develop that perception of death is contemplate your own death. Sit somewhere for an extended period of time and kind of visualize and imagine your own death and come to terms with that and realize that that's going to actually happen. And there's some additional guidance that I can give you if you need help to develop this perception of death. I can talk to you in a private discussion and help you to understand more details about how to develop this perception of death. So these are the five things that the Buddha talks about that need to be really well established. In the next few chapters, he's going to talk about these same things, but just in a slightly different way. So any questions on this chapter? Anne has a question. It's good to hear. Hi, teacher David. So I wanted to um, speak about um, and training the mind to eliminate mental longing towards specific foods. Uh, would a practitioner who has uh, preferences for food, um, would that indicate uh, a longing or a craving that's existing? If there's a longing for a certain type of food, yes. So if you notice that the mind is pulling towards a certain type of food, you would like to apply right effort and cut that off. So if you observe these donuts, you're like, oh my goodness, those donuts look so good. I want to devour them right now. Instead, take the mind in the opposite direction. Even though you could easily purchase those donuts and eat them right now, you need to train the mind not to have that craving. So take the mind in the opposite direction and do that two, three, four, five, six times until you're satisfied that the mind no longer has craving for donuts. You can eat donuts at some point in the future, but don't allow the mind to hold on to this craving. And the only way that you'll know if it's a craving or not is if you observe these pleasant feelings arising, then you know there's a craving. And then if they don't have the donuts that you would like to get, if there's painful feelings, if there's annoyance or frustration or irritation, you know there's a craving there. And one of the only ways that you will also know is if you observe that the donuts are there and you've just got to have them and you can't walk away from them, then you know that there's craving there. And that gives you even more importance that you need to walk away from those donuts three, four, five, ten different times until you're satisfied and observe that, yeah, the mind is not craving this anymore, 
let me try to have a donut and see how that goes. So the misunderstanding about this path to enlightenment is that we need to give up all of this stuff and that somehow we never can eat food that's going to taste enjoyable for us. We can. We can actually eat food that like chocolate cake and different things that we would like to eat. But you've got to be sure that there's not a craving desire attachment there. And one way that you can assure that is when you observe something like donuts or chocolate cake and you're like, oh, I would like to have that. As soon as you feel that urge or that pulling or that longing, take the mind in the opposite direction. Like, no, I'm not going to get that chocolate cake today and see if you can do that. And if you can do that for multiple times, then you can be satisfied that, yeah, there's no more craving there. I've let that go. And now maybe I'll start having chocolate cake every once in a while or I'll have a donut every once in a while. And that's completely fine. Okay, if I understand you correctly, if there is pleasant feelings uh, arising from eating something that you have chosen, um, but little discontent feeling if that particular item is not there before you, uh, would that still indicate a longing for that pleasant feeling? Yes, if there's pleasant feelings that arise, that's discontentedness. There means there's a craving desire attachment there. If they don't have what you would like and you experience painful feelings, then you know there's a craving and desire there as well. So it's not just the painful feelings that are discontentedness, it's the pleasant feelings too. So like say you're walking towards your favorite restaurant, you're like, oh, they got the chocolate cake today. That's that pleasant feeling arising. The mind is really craving it. And you feel that excitement coming into the mind because they have the chocolate cake. That is showing you that there's a craving desire attachment there. Whereas if it's like in your mind, you're just like, oh, they got chocolate cake. Okay, well, it looks like I'm going to get a piece of chocolate cake today. But then you sit down, maybe you have your meal, you order the chocolate cake, but maybe it's all gone by the time you're done your meal. And they're like, oh, sorry, we don't have any more chocolate cake. And if you're like, hold on, I saw it. Why can't you get me a piece, right? Like this is that craving where if you're like, oh, you guys don't have any more chocolate cake. Okay, well, I guess I won't get a piece of chocolate cake today. And you just see that as impermanence rather than the mind having these strong feelings for the chocolate cake. So if you have these strong, pleasant feelings or these strong, painful feelings, then you know there's craving there for sure. It looks like I have to take a look at desserts a lot more carefully. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I use that one because, you know, that's that's a one that people's minds oftentimes get very attached to because of the tongue, right? The flavor, that sweetness, it really triggers pleasant feelings in the mind. So looking at desserts is a really important one. And even going without desserts for an extended period of time, maybe the way that you're going to make sure there's no craving for desserts is maybe for like a three-month period of time, you just decide not to eat any sweets whatsoever. And that's maybe the way you choose to practice to ensure you're not attached to any. And then after three months, you kind of slowly go back to it. Um, or maybe you go a week without it, and then you have a week where you do eat a dessert here or there. And maybe you go a week without any desserts, and then you have one year there. You can implement this however you like, but you would like to kind of observe the mind that when you don't have sweets what's going on is there craving there and if you observe that the mind is longing for those sweets when you know you're have decided to let them go for a week or two or a month then you know okay i really need to extinguish this because the mind's having this yearning for sweets 
and I've only decided to not eat them and it's only been a week but yet the mind is still longing for them this is where the mindfulness comes in is having that awareness of mind and being able to objectively observe your own mind and what would be your recommendation if there was a particular food item and dessert in our example here today um, that was available in front of me and it's a something that has been previously preferred by me what do you recommend would be a good practice in this case at that moment this is where you would like to distance yourself from it you would like to go away from it you would like to move the mind in the opposite direction. This is what the Buddha talks about on the Eightfold Path, and I think there's a chapter that we're going to be discussing it today too, where he talks about distancing yourself, distancing the mind from unwholesome mental states. And the more you walk away from it and you choose to make conscious choices to apply right effort to move away from that chocolate cake and do that multiple times, and still reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, then you know, okay, I've turned away from that chocolate cake 10 times. The mind is still content and peaceful. I'm completely fine with that. So now I'm satisfied that the mind is not attached to this chocolate cake. So let me try to have a piece and see how it goes. This is where you have to observe the mind and see if it's pulling. And then one of the ways that you get rid of it is you don't allow the mind to satisfy its craving by eating the chocolate cake you move away from it in the opposite direction and don't eat the chocolate cake for multiple occasions understood thank you you're welcome all right so we're going to see these same things here in this chapter i described them quite a bit we're going to see these same things repeated here well developing and cultivating the five things First course, monks, a being-made or female ordained practitioner, develops and cultivates five things. One of the fruits is to be predicted, either by the knowledge, wisdom, in this very life, or if there is a residue remaining, the non-returner, stage of enlightenment. What are the five? Here, a monk has mindfulness, will establish the eternity for gaining the wisdom that discerns the arising and passing away of mental objects. He resides reflecting on the unattractiveness of the body, perceiving the dissatisfaction of food, perceiving non-excitement in the entire world, and reflecting good impermanence in the whole conditioned objects. Any male or female or gain practitioner develops and cultivates these five things. One of two fruits is to be predicted either by the knowledge wisdom in this very life, or if there is a residue remaining, the non-returned stage of enlightenment. Okay, thank you, Bassam. So here, the Buddha is talking about enlightenment itself when he talks about final knowledge. You know, I put there in parentheses wisdom. That's what he's talking about because wisdom is what leads to enlightenment. And when he talks about final knowledge, he's talking about the ninth step of the tenfold path, which is called right wisdom. So it takes wisdom to liberate the mind from ignorance or this unknowing of true reality. So if someone's attained final knowledge, this final wisdom, then they are enlightened. The mind is enlightened. So he's saying, if you develop these five things, you're either going to get to enlightenment, which is final knowledge, or if there's a residual remaining amount of craving, 
desire attachment, then there's going to be this stage of non-returning, which is the third stage of enlightenment. And then from there, someone's going to be reborn in the heavenly realm and they're going to attain enlightenment from there. So what are those five things that he's saying, okay, cultivate these five and you're either going to attain enlightenment in this life or you're going to attain this stage of non-returner where you'll get enlightened from the heavenly realm. He says mindfulness needs to be well established internally for gaining wisdom that discerns the arising and passing away of mental objects. This is that four foundations of mindfulness. Whenever you see him talking about being mindful or mindfulness, always think the four foundations of mindfulness, the bodily sensations, the feelings in the mind, the condition of the mind, and the mental objects. I discussed that in this book. I discuss it in many of the books. I share with you exactly what the four foundations of mindfulness are so that you can learn them. And then don't just learn them in the book, but start observing them in your own mind. That notice before anger arises in the mind, there's these bodily sensations that start to arise to alert you that anger is about to come. And if you can get to the point where you can be aware of the bodily sensations, that's where you can cut them off. And it's not just painful feelings that you'll experience bodily sensations prior to the feelings coming into the mind, but it's also pleasant feelings too. This happiness, excitement, elation, you'll observe before it becomes feelings in the mind, there's these bodily sensations. And if you can cut it off there, that's ideal. And even neither painful nor pleasant, things like shyness or boredom or loneliness, there's bodily sensations associated with that, that if you can catch it at the bodily sensations and cut it off and understand that these things are impermanent, that's what the Buddha is explaining to you here is to gain that inner discipline, that inner awareness, that inner wisdom to be able to observe these arising and passing away of these four foundations of mindfulness. And then we've already talked about these other four, so I won't go through those again. So the Buddha is saying, you know, not only in the previous chapter where he's saying, you know, okay, you know, don't lose these four things. Here he's saying it in a slightly different way, saying, okay, if you develop these five things, then you're going to attain enlightenment. Any questions on this chapter? Yes, yeah, sure. Is it a good idea to include these five things in meditation? as a kind of transformations to be repeated while in meditation? You're not going to be able to necessarily develop these through meditation. There's definitely work in meditation that you need to do, but most of this stuff is happening outside of meditation. So if you're meditating the way that I taught with breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation, do those in the way that I taught. That's going to help you develop mindfulness but then you need to practice mindfulness in daily life where when you're observing the arising frustration or irritation or anger that you clue into those bodily sensations first that's what's going on in daily life you're not going to observe those in meditation because your mind's not going to probably be angry during meditation so there's things you need to do in meditation and there's things you need to do outside of meditation and some of these things there's aspects of meditation that are helping us, but you're not going to be able to develop these things by just repeating these phrases. Most of these things are developed outside of meditation. All right. So let's move to chapter 26. Yes, let's look around. 
developing and cultivating five things second discourse amongst these five things when developed and cultivated lead exclusively to liberation to freedom from strong feelings to elimination to peace to direct knowledge experience to enlightenment to nibbana what five here a monk resides reflecting on the unattractiveness of the body perceiving the dissatisfaction of food perceiving non-excitement in the entire world reflecting on impermanence in all conditioned objects and he has a perception of death well established internally these five things when developed and cultivated lead exclusively to liberation to freedom from strong feelings to elimination to peace to direct knowledge experience to enlightenment to nibbana okay thank you manol so this is the same thing that we've been discussing he's just preceding it with saying okay these things lead to enlightenment rather than some of the other ways that he preceded it. So do you guys have any questions on this? Looks like Bassam's stepped away. Doesn't look like there are any questions, teacher David. Okay. So here we see Bassam is impermanent also. <laughs> All right. Developing and cultivating five things this course. Mom, these five things, when developed and cultivated, lead to the destruction of the taint. What five? Here, among reside, reflecting on the, on the unattractiveness of the body, perceiving the dissatisfaction of food, perceiving non-excitement in the entire world, reflecting on impermanent in all conditions of objects. And he has the perception of that well-established internally. These fighting, when developed and cultivated, lead to the destruction of the things. Perfect. Thank you, Ali. So here we again, it's the same five things, but he's preceding it a bit different, right? He's actually talking about the same thing. He's saying that developing and cultivating these five things leads to the destruction of the taints. He's saying it leads to the elimination of the 10 fetters. When you eliminate the 10 fetters, the mind is enlightened. So what he said in the previous chapters is the same thing. He's just saying it a little bit different way to help you understand it in a little bit different way. So he didn't repeat these necessarily one after another after another in the same conversation. He's having different conversations with different people throughout his 45-year teaching career and his students are remembering these things and writing them down. So here we've just consolidated them. So you can see him referring to the same thing, but just in a slightly different way, right? So any questions on this chapter? No question, Mr. All right. Chapter 28. Developing and cultivating five things, fourth discourse. Monks, these five things, when developed and cultivated, have liberation of the mind as their fruit, liberation of mind as their fruit and benefit. They have liberation by wisdom as their fruit, liberation by wisdom as their fruit and benefit. What five? Here a monk resides reflecting on the unattractiveness of the body, perceiving the dissatisfaction of food, perceiving non-excitement in the entire world, reflecting on impermanence in all conditioned objects, and he has a perception of death well established internally. These five things, when developed and cultivated, have liberation of mind as their fruit, liberation of mind as their fruit and benefit. They have liberation by wisdom as their fruit, liberation by wisdom as their fruit and benefit. 
When a monk is liberated in mind and liberated by wisdom, he is called a monk who has removed the crossbar, filled in the moat, pulled out the pillar, a boatless one, a noble one with banner lowered, with burden dropped unaffected. And how has a monk removed the crossbar? Here a monk has abandoned ignorance, cut it off at the root, made it like a palm stump, obliterated it so that it is no more subject to future arising. It is in this way that a monk has removed the crossbar. And how has a monk filled in the moat? Here a monk has abandoned the wandering on in birth that brings renewed existence. He has cut it off at the root, made it like a palm stump, obliterated it so that it is no more subject to future arising. It is in this way that a monk has filled the moat, filled in the moat. And how has a monk pulled out the pillar? Here a monk has abandoned craving, cut it off at the root, made it like a palm stump, obliterated it so that it is no more subject to future arising. It is in this way that a monk has pulled out the pillar. And how is a monk a boldless one? Here a monk has abandoned the five lower fetters, cut them off at the root, made them like a palm stump, obliterated them so that they are no more subject to future arising. It is in this way that a monk is a boldless one. And how is a monk a noble one, with banner lowered, with burden dropped, unaffected? Here a monk has abandoned the conceit, I am, cut it off at the root, made it like a palm stump, obliterate, obliterated it so that it is no more subject to future arising. It is in this way that a monk is a noble one, with banner lowered, with burden dropped, unaffected. All right. Thank you, Manol. So here's the Buddha talking about those same five things that we've been discussing so far, saying these five things lead to liberation of the mind. They lead to enlightenment, is what he's saying. He says those five things again, making sure that you understand that they lead to liberation, they lead to enlightenment. But now he goes through this little bit of an analogy and kind of talking about some of the details of what it takes to get to enlightenment. Here he says, okay, remove this crossbar, right? And he's saying you need to abandon ignorance, this unknowing of true reality. You need to cut it off at the root, basically eliminate it from the mind, go back into the mind. And the way that you transform ignorance is by arising wisdom. That's the, the antidote or that's what transforms the ignorance. How do you get wisdom? Learning the teachings, reflect on them and practice them independently observing the truth for yourself. So you learn things like the five precepts and you learn them you reflect on them and you start practicing them and you start seeing that your life improves when you're practicing these five precepts because you're no longer causing harm in the world so less and less harm comes to you you learn things like right speech and those five factors of well-spoken speech you learn them you reflect on them and then you start practicing them and then when you see your conversations are going better your personal and professional relationships are blossoming then you know, wow, this wisdom of the Buddha, these five factors of well-spoken speech are improving my relationships. I've been practicing these five factors of well-spoken speech for three months, for six months, for a year. My life just keeps getting better and better. All my relationships are really drastically improving. And there you have the wisdom to eliminate your wrong speech that you are practicing in the past. Now you're arising this right speech and you've got this wisdom where you've now transformed this ignorance and now you know the way to speak and you're using those five factors of well-spoken speech as your guidance. Your personality, your character, your word choice, the way you talk, that's going to be all unique to you. 
but at least you have this guidance of something like right speech and the five factors of well-spoken speech. And once you get that wisdom, it will antidote this ignorance. And there's all these different teachings that the mind is unenlightened. It's therefore ignorant, unknowing of true reality. It's lacking this wisdom. And it's through learning these teachings that you then learn, reflect, and practice to arise this wisdom. And then once you eradicate ignorance, that's what unravels all the problems that are causing the mind to be trapped in the unenlightened state. Ignorance is the primary reason why the mind is in the unenlightened state. It's craving, desire, attachment, which is the primary reason that's causing the discontentedness. That's what causes discontentedness. But why does the mind still hold on to craving, desire, attachment? Why does it not know that craving, desire, attachment is causing this discontentedness? It's because of the ignorance. It's the unknowing of true reality. It lacks the wisdom to understand that it's craving, desire, attachment that is causing anger. It lacks the wisdom. It has this ignorance, this unknowing of true reality, that craving, desire, attachment is causing shyness and boredom and loneliness and even happiness, excitement, elation. So when you understand the teachings and you see the truth for yourself, that all this discontentedness is arising because of craving, desire, attachment, now you're starting to slowly antidote this ignorance and arise this wisdom. When you start understanding things like impermanence and you understand the universal truth of impermanence, you're arising this wisdom and antidoting this ignorance. So that's removing the crossbar. You would need to remove all ignorance from the mind in order to get to enlightenment because that's the primary thing that's keeping the mind trapped in the unenlightened state. And how does a monk fulfill in the moat? He talks about abandoning this wandering around and this constant rebirth, understanding that it's craving, desire, attachment that leads to rebirth. So by you eliminating this craving, desire, attachment to end and eliminate discontentedness, you're also eliminating rebirth. So there's no more future arising of any more existences. So now here he goes. How do we pull out the pillar? Well, we abandon craving. By abandoning craving, desire, attachment, cut it off. So when you observe those bodily sensations, because of mindfulness, you observe those bodily sensations of happiness, excitement, elation, or anger, sadness, frustration, jealousy, fear, guilt, shame. When you observe these discontent feelings, it's because of craving, desire, attachment. So when you experience the bodily sensations, you cut it off and let it go there. And more and more by cutting it back, make it like a palm stump. If you've ever seen a palm tree that has growing and you cut it back to the palm stump, it's very low. It's very low to the base so that you obliterate it. You obliterate this craving, desire, attachment, eliminate it from the mind, dispel it from the mind, get rid of this pollution so that it's no more subject to future arising. So it no longer arises in the future. You have to cut it back and cut it back. If you think about a wild bush that's growing, you would like to cut it back and cut it back and cut it back and cut it back all the way down to the stump, uprooting the roots so then it will never grow again. Or if you're pulling weeds and you pull the weed, if you just pull the flower or the leaf of the weed, it's going to keep growing. 
you got to get all the way into the roots in order for that weed to not grow back again. So that's what you're doing with craving is getting all the way down into the root and then you uproot it by practicing breathing mindfulness meditation, by practicing generosity, by practicing the four foundations of mindfulness to cut it back more and more. And then you're getting it into the root and then it won't arise in the future and cause continuous discontentedness. Then he talks about being a boltless one. Here he's talking about abandoning the five lower fetters. This is someone who is in the third stage of enlightenment, who's attained the stage of non-returner. He's saying this is one who's a boltless one. They've cut back and eliminated these five lower fetters. And then he talks about lowering the banner and dropping the burden. The burden is craving, desire, attachment. So when you drop craving, desire, attachment, when you eliminate that from the mind, then the mind is unaffected. You see here, he talks about being unaffected once the burden is dropped. Lowering the banner, he's talking about this conceit or this arrogance, this pride, the mind wanting to be above others, right? Or sometimes it wants to be below others too. So that's where he says to lower the banner, we need to abandon conceit, I am. Like I am so wonderful. I am so great. I am a wonderful mom. I am a wonderful son. I'm a wonderful teacher. I'm the best teacher this world has ever seen. Any of this, I am, I am, I am. This is just conceit. So the Buddha is saying, lower the banner, be humble, come down back to earth, right? When you get rid of this conceit, I am, you've lowered the banner. And you're not carrying around this burden. You're not carrying this ego, this arrogance, this pride, this conceit, this judging, this measuring and comparing others. Instead, the mind can just be peaceful and content, satisfied with what is, right? So if as long as we're carrying around this burden of craving, desire, attachment, wanting the world to be a certain way, then it's not going to experience this peacefulness because it feels like nothing in the world is happening the way it wants it to happen. But that's just the mind's ignorance because it doesn't understand the natural laws of existence. When you get this wisdom of these natural laws and you look at out the world, you understand the world's happening exactly the way that it's happening because of these natural laws of existence. The problem isn't that someone cuts you off in traffic. That's not the problem. The problem is that the mind wanted this lane to be your, by yourself, right? You wanted it to not have somebody in front of you. That's the problem because this person moving in front of you in traffic, that's just impermanence, that you couldn't have this lane to yourself permanently. So the problem is that the mind wanted the lane, not that somebody cut you off. Or the problem isn't that they don't have chocolate cake today at the restaurant that you went to. That's not the problem. That's actually impermanence. That makes complete sense. The problem is that the mind craves that chocolate cake. It's holding on to it. It wants it to be permanent. That's the craving. That's the real problem in the mind. The unenlightened mind is craving permanence. It wants this chocolate cake. The fact that the chocolate cake doesn't exist the restaurant hasn't done anything wrong. 
They're just experiencing impermanence. And now the mind's not comfortable with that impermanence, so therefore it gets angry or frustrated or irritated. So when you understand what the real problem is and you don't have this conceit like, who do they think I am? I'm the customer. I'm always right. Why can't they have the chocolate cake here? You get rid of that I am. I am always right. I am the customer. You know, why can't they serve me? Now you get rid of that conceit, that arrogance, and you just realize, oh, okay, that's impermanent. There's no chocolate cake today. All right, well, we'll try another time. Or maybe I'll get apple pie instead or chocolate ice cream, right? So getting rid of these things that the Buddha is talking about is what's going to move the mind to enlightenment, which is getting rid of these 10 fetters. And then the mind is liberated from this ignorance, this pollution of mind, these taints. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? All right. So let's go to the next one, which is 29. Perfect, Ali. Thank you so much. So here, this is right intention. There's three aspects to right intention. There's the intention of renunciation, eliminating those central thoughts, letting go. The thought of non-ill will, 
in the thought of practicing harmlessness. This is right intention. And the Buddha is saying, okay, if the central thought, a thought of ill will or a thought of harming arises, do not tolerate it. In order to be dedicated, determined, and diligent, don't tolerate this central thought like, oh my goodness, I want that chocolate cake so bad. No, cut that off, abandon it, dispel it, terminate it, obliterate it. Or this anger, this hatred, this ill will arises and you observe in the mind that this is starting to arise. Don't tolerate it, abandon it. Whether you're walking, whether you're standing, whether you're sitting, whether you're laying down, any of those times, if you're just laying in bed, if you're standing somewhere, if you're sitting somewhere, don't tolerate these central thoughts, these thoughts of ill will, this thought of harming. You need to terminate it, dispel it, obliterate it, cut it off at the root, which is those bodily sensations arising. And the Buddha is saying, if you do this, then you're dedicated, you're diligent, you're determined. And you have this moral concern where you're not comfortable, you're not interested in doing anything wrong. So when you see these central thoughts, these thoughts of ill will and these thoughts of harming arising, because you're interested in walking towards the light, you're not interested in being in the darkness, you're interested in walking towards the light, you have this moral concern, you're not interested in doing wrong. You don't have an interest of doing wrongdoing. You have a concern, this moral concern, this interest to do well and walk towards the light. If you do this constantly and continuously, the mind is energetic. It's determined. It's dedicated. It's diligent. Because anytime you arise, any central thoughts, thoughts of ill will or thoughts of harming, you cut it off and you let it go. And that's how you ultimately arise this right intention and you get rid of some of the craving desire attachments that are in the mind so what questions do you guys have on this chapter all right this next chapter is essentially exactly the same thing but now he's going to talk about the opposite side he's going to talk about complacency one who is constantly complacent monks a sensual thought a thought of ill will or a thought of harming arises in the monk while walking, and he tolerates it, does not abandon it, dispel it, terminate it, and obliterate it. Then that monk is said to be lacking of effort and moral concern. He is constantly and continuously complacent and lacking in energy while walking. The essential thought, a thought of ill will, or a thought of harming arises in the monk while standing, and he tolerates it, does not abandon it, dispel it, ter terminate it, and obliterate it, then that monk is said to be lacking of effort and moral concern. He is constantly and continuously complacent and lacking in energy while standing. A essential thought, a thought of ill will, or a thought of harming arises in a monk while sitting, and he tolerates it, does not abandon it, dispel it, terminate it, and obliterate it, then that monk is said to be lacking of effort and moral concern. He is constantly and continuously complacent and lacking in energy while sitting. A essential thought, a thought of ill or a thought of harming arises in a monk, while wakefully lying down, and he tolerates it, 
does not abandon it, dispel it, terminate it, and obliterate it, then that monk is said to be lacking of effort and moral concern. He is constantly and continuously complacent and lacking in energy while woefully lying down. All right. Thank you, Basim. So here, it's just the opposite, right? This person is either sitting, standing, walking, or wakefully laying down, and there's this central thought, this thought of ill will, this thought of harming arises, and they're like, oh, okay, I'm just going to allow the mind to indulge in that stuff, and then it's going to start motivating unskillful speech, unskillful actions, we're going to start causing harm in the world, and now all that stuff's going to just come back to us. So what the Buddha is saying is, you know, if you do that, then the mind is complacent, that it's lacking this effort, it's lacking this energy, that we're not applying ourselves in a dedicated and diligent way. And of course, that's just going to lead to continuous harm. So that first chapter about dedication, that's where you should be practicing. So wherever you observe that the mind's complacent, and it's like, ah, uh, yeah, I feel the mind craving that chocolate cake, but yeah, I'm just going to have it. You know, why not? What What's the harm? I'm just going to have it. You know, let's just go ahead and get that piece of chocolate cake. Ah, that's complacency setting in. And, or you're like, yeah, I know I should be meditating today and I should go meditate, but ah, I'm just going to sit here and play on Facebook and watch TV for a bit longer. Yeah, I don't need to meditate. I'm, I'm going to do that another day. That's the complacency. And that's going to hinder you from making progress on this path. So you need to arise this effort, the right effort as part of the Eightfold Path is to eliminate unwholesome qualities and arise wholesome qualities. That's that right effort he's talking about. And then he's talking about this energy. That's the willingness to do something, having enthusiasm, being motivated. That's the enlightenment factor of energy from the seven factors of enlightenment, which you can see in all the resources that I share. I talk about practicing the seven factors of enlightenment and explaining to you what that enlightenment factor of energy is all about. So we need to be practicing that enlightenment factor of energy, that right effort to then observe the mind with mindfulness, observe those central thoughts, thoughts of ill will, thoughts of harming, and not tolerate them abandon them, dispel them, terminate them, and obliterate them. And then you're dedicated, diligent, and you're determined to progress on this path. Otherwise, the Buddha is saying you're just being complacent, and that's going to essentially harm you by allowing the mind to reside complacent. Questions on this one? Yes, Do you consider all levels of anger are kinds of ill-will? Yes. So there's anger, hatred, ill will. We talk about it that way as part of this poison because that's like the highest level, right? Even like rage, right? So that's like the highest level. But there's these other degrees of it, right? There's, there's frustration. There's irritation. There's even annoyance. That comes from that same aspect of mind. That annoyance is where the mind experiences something and it gets annoyed with this person and now we start acting out in harsh ways or aggressive ways. It's the same poison. It's that same unwholesome root. It's all being precipitated by ignorance and craving, but it's that other aspect of the mind, that hostility, that aggression, that harshness, 
that the mind has that anger, hatred, and ill will, but we function the same way, but maybe to a lesser degree when the mind is frustrated, irritated, maybe even annoyed. Sometimes someone can be a, a bit harsh or, or not quite as sweet and gentle or mild as if the mind didn't have that anger, hatred, ill will. So even though we talk about it in this extreme, there's these lesser versions of it as well. All right. So now we go to the very last chapter of this book, which is the four modes of practice for destruction of the taints. Monks, there are these four modes of practice. What for? One, practice that is painful or sluggish, direct knowledge experience. Two, practice that is painful with quick direct knowledge experience. Three, practice that is pleasant with sluggish direct knowledge experience. And four, practice that is pleasant with quick direct knowledge experience. Here a monk resides reflecting on the unattractiveness of the body, perceiving the dissatisfaction of food, perceiving non-excitement in the entire world, reflecting on impermanence in all conditioned objects, and he has the perception of death well established internally. He resides depending upon these five three powers, the power of constance, the power of moral wrongdoing, the power of moral concern, the power of energy, and the power of wisdom. These five faculties arise in him without strength. The faculty of confidence, the faculty of energy, the faculty of mindfulness, the faculty of concentration, and the faculty of wisdom. Because these five faculties are without strength, he sluggishly attains the immediate condition for the for the destruction of the things. This is called practice that is painful with sluggish direct knowledge experience. Here among a painful mood with quick direct knowledge experience. Here among resides reflecting on the unattractiveness of the body, perceiving the dissatisfaction of food, perceiving non-excitement in the entire world, reflecting the impermanence in all conditioned objects, and he has a perception of death well established internally. He resides depending upon these five three powers, the power of practice, the power of moral wrongdoing, the power of moral concern, the power of energy, and the power of wisdom. These five faculties arise in him with strength, the faculty of confidence, the faculty of energy, the faculty of mindfulness, the faculty of concentration, and the faculty of wisdom. Because these five faculties are stronger, he quickly attains the immediate condition for the destruction of the things. This is called practice that is painful with quick direct knowledge experience. Pleasant mood with sluggish direct knowledge experience. Here, distant from sensual pleasures, distant from unwholesome states, a monk resides and enters and resides in the first jhana, the second jhana, the third jhana, the fourth jhana. He resides depending upon these five trendy powers, the power of confidence, the power of moral wrongdoing, the power of moral concern, the power of energy, and the power of wisdom. These five faculties arise in him. <clears throat> Without strength, the faculty of confidence, the faculty of energy, 
the faculty of mindfulness, the faculty of concentration, and the faculty of wisdom. Because these five faculties are without strength, he sluggishly attains the immediate condition for the destruction of the tense. This is called practice that is pleasant with sluggish direct knowledge experience. Pleasant mood with quick direct knowledge experience. Here, distant from sensual pleasures, distant from unwholesome states, a monk enters and resides in the first jhana, the second jhana, the third jhana, the fourth jhana. He resides depending upon these five training powers, the power of confidence, the power of moral wrongdoing, the power of moral concern, the power of energy, and the power of wisdom. These five faculties arise in him strength, with strength, the faculty of confidence, the faculty of energy, the faculty of mindfulness, the faculty of concentration, and the faculty of wisdom. Because these five faculties are strong, he quickly attains the immediate condition for the destruction of the tense. This is called practice that is pleasant with quick direct knowledge experience. These monks are the four modes of practice. Okay, thank you, Basum. So here the Buddha is providing a, a pretty deep teaching just to help you understand the four modes or the four ways of eliminating the ten fetters. The destruction of the taints is the ten fetters. He talks about this method that is painful with sluggish or slow results, essentially. Painful with quick results. Pleasant with slow or sluggish results. And then pleasant with quick results. So you don't necessarily need to know every single thing that's here and kind of pick a method that you're going to employ. But instead, you can draw out of here what the Buddha is actually teaching and be sure that you develop these things. So, for example, this one where he says painful mode with a sluggish direct result. He's saying reflecting on those five things that we've been talking about, the unattractiveness of the body, dissatisfaction in food, non-excitement in the entire world, all conditioned objects are impermanent, and the perception of death. You're going to be interested in developing those regardless right? And then he talks about here the five training powers and the five faculties that are without strength, okay? And then the painful mode with quick results are those same th five things that the mind's reflecting on, but instead there's this strength of these five faculties. There's this strength where the slow mode or sluggish mode, there wasn't this strength with these five faculties, then he talks about this pleasant mode of attaining enlightenment or this pleasant way, but it has kind of a slow result. Is he saying, okay, attain these four jhanas. These are the preliminary phases that the mind goes through before the first stage of enlightenment. So work on developing right concentration and getting into those first four jhanas, which is done through practicing the full path. But because these faculties are without strength, it's kind of a slow method. So what you would really like to do as part of this is you would like to develop the four jhanas, which you do through practicing the Eightfold Path and more and more bringing your practice up to practicing the Eightfold Path more and more. And you would like to develop these five faculties. Let's talk about these. What a faculty is, is the faculty is an interest and ability 
to be able to cultivate these things. So the faculty of confidence is that you have the interest and the ability to cultivate confidence in the Buddha, his teachings, and the community. You don't necessarily have confidence and confirmed confidence in the Buddha, the teachings, and the community, but you have the interest and ability to cultivate this confidence. So the willingness, and if you have that strength, then the Buddha is saying, okay, this will help you to get to enlightenment because you're interested and have this ability and you have this willingness to cultivate this confidence. And the same thing, this interest, ability, and willingness to cultivate this enlightenment factor of energy or this faculty of energy. The same thing, the faculty of mindfulness. That's the right mindfulness from the Eightfold Path, those four foundations of mindfulness. It also shows up as part of the seven factors of enlightenment. Mindfulness, those four foundations of mindfulness, having the interest, the ability, and willingness to cultivate mindfulness in the mind. That's what he's talking about. There needs to be strength there, that you have this determination, this dedication, this diligence to develop this mindfulness. Same thing with concentration or right concentration. Practicing breathing mindfulness meditation, practicing singleness of mind in your daily life, being diligent and dedicated to actually doing that. Having the interest, the willingness, and the ability to actually do that. And then the last one is this faculty of wisdom, not believing the teachings, but instead learning, reflecting, and practicing to arise this wisdom, independently verify the teachings through your own effort, right? So this is the way the Buddha is saying, okay, this is a real pleasant and quick way to move towards enlightenment is practice the Eightfold Path as close and close as you can to get to those jhanas because once the mind's in the jhanas, it's like night and day. You've really significantly diminished the discontentedness and there's this mindfulness, there's this equanimity, there's this joy that comes into the mind. And from there, you can more readily move through the four stages of enlightenment. But in order to do that, there needs to be strength in these faculties to develop confidence, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. As long as you're focusing on those things, then the Buddha is saying, okay, you have this strength because you're working on developing the confidence, you're practicing this energy or this enthusiasm, this willingness to do something, this mindfulness, awareness of mind, the four foundations of mindfulness, developing concentration or clear comprehension, using breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing singleness of mind in your daily life and developing this wisdom on a consistent ongoing basis. So these are the four modes, but rather than try to understand these four modes or necessarily remember every single mode, just remember the takeaways, which is develop the Eightfold Path, move that closer and closer to perfection, and then develop these five faculties. And you'll see this as we get into this next volume five that we're going to be studying beyond today's class. It's going to help you to understand these things in more detail. Any questions on this chapter? Yeah, teacher. I have a question on Facebook from Lina. She says, a question about complacency. Sometimes when the mind knows it is best to meditate versus cleaning or best to eat mindfully versus eating while listening to a podcast. Knowing that, knowing the fact 
The path is winding. What can one do in these moments to shift towards a more dedicated behavior? This is where you have to be really active in your practice because, see, you, you have the wisdom at least that you shouldn't be eating and listening to a podcast, for example. And you know that that's not helpful for the mind and you would like to practice singleness of mind. So you have the wisdom, but you're not moving it into practice. So you've done the learning, you've done the reflection, but you're not moving it into practice. So you've got to figure out ways to separate the mind from this craving to be eating and listening to a podcast. And that might mean that when you're getting ready to eat, you put your phone in a completely different room or whatever device you listen to a podcast on, you put it in a completely different room and you just focus on eating or you go take your food and you go to a room that doesn't have any electronic devices and you just eat. And after you actively do that for three, four, five, ten 10 times, then it will be easier. But you gotta kind of have to apply that effort and that energy to kind of inject something into your practice where you're removing the mind and you're distancing it from that craving that it's trying to hold on to. It's trying to hold on to this podcast while you're eating and you're not interested in doing that. So you gotta break the chain, right? That fetter, that ball and chain around your ankle. You gotta break that chain. And after you break it and you see that you can go off and eat without the podcast, for example, and you can do that six, eight, 10, 12, 20 times, and you're completely fine with that, then you'll know, okay, I've broken that chain. I don't need to go lock myself in a room somewhere. I don't need to go hide my phone or give my phone to my husband and say, go hide this. I'm getting ready to eat. You don't need to do that, but you're going to need to do it for probably 10 times or 20 times in order to get the mind to break that chain away from the craving. And then after you've broken the chain and you've observing, ah, the mind's so much more content just sitting here eating and just focusing on eating, then you know, okay, I've gotten rid of that craving, but you're not going to go back to it because you've gotten rid of it. So you've got to implement some kind of measures like that, that distances the mind from the object of its affection, right? That podcast is the object of its affection and it it gets these pleasant feelings when it's listening to the podcast while eating. You've got to let that go and distance it from the objects of its affection so it's not obsessing over holding on to these things. All right. Well, I'll just end today's class by thanking all of you for joining and for your dedication, for your diligence. If you're regularly showing up for classes, if you're regularly reading these books, if you're are listening to podcasts at different times in your day, then you're practicing that dedication, that determination, that diligence to arising this wisdom. So as you keep learning like this, you're going to see that through being dedicated to meditation, through learning, through practicing the whole Eightfold Path in your daily life, the discontentedness will just gradually, gradually, gradually diminish. And as you do, you can observe that the condition of the mind is improving and that's how you know you're learning the truth the true teachings of the buddha so thank you all for joining today's class if you'd like to join tomorrow for the group learning program we're going to be in chapter 12 of volume one which is craving is the problem what is the solution i'm going to go into the three universal truths the four noble truths we're going to talk about the solution not just 
those particular teachings themselves, but we're going to bring together the teachings of what the problems are in the mind, and then we're going to talk about how to eliminate them from the mind as well in, in more detail than what I've done in other classes. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation. For our next class on Saturday, we're going to be in volume five. And this volume is all about the first stage of enlightenment, about stream entry. This is a big step forward. When somebody can get into the first stage of enlightenment, this is a big step forward for you. So this book is quite a thick book. It's only 53 chapters, but those chapters are quite long and quite detailed. This is a very meaty book. You're not interested in just blowing through the book and just reading it just to read it. You really need to take your time in volume five. With all the volumes, we should really be taking our time. But particularly with volume five, you're going to observe that there's teachings in there that you need to learn, you need to reflect on, and you need to practice in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment. Without understanding the teachings in that book, you wouldn't be able to get to the first stage of enlightenment. So take your time with it. Go through it very deliberately, very diligently. You might want to give yourself some extra time. If you normally read for 20 minutes a day, you might need 30 or 40 minutes to really sit with the chapters and really think about them, particularly when we get into chapter 14, which is dependent origination. This is the highest, most ultimate teaching of the Buddha. It's considered to be the ultimate truth. If you can take your time with that and gradually start to understand dependent origination, it doesn't get any more complicated than chapter 14 in terms of all the other teachings of the Buddha. If you can gradually start to understand chapter 14 through your own reading, through the classes, through reflecting on it, maybe some personal guidance, some additional discussion with your friends and different people that are part of our community. Once you understand dependent origination, it really starts to unravel and put into perspective all the other teachings of the Buddha. So this particular book is going to walk you through not just dependent origination, but things like how to establish right view above and beyond what we've talked about in the group learning program. It's going to help you understand the five aggregates, which is really important to be able to get to the first stage of enlightenment. It's going to help you understand personal existence view and how to eradicate the self so that you can realize non-self. So I would like to just guide you to really take your time with volume five and be sure you go through it very diligently as you're progressing. Just take your time, realize that there's going to be things in that book that you probably aren't going to understand the first time that you read them. You're probably going to need two, three, four times to go through it in order to really understand it. And that's okay because this is going to be one of the most challenging books in the whole book series. And that's because it's the first stage of enlightenment. So take your time with it. No worries. You can chip away at this slowly but surely, and I'm here to help you as you have questions. So enjoy your reading. I'll see you guys either next Saturday for chapters 1 through 10 of Volume 5, or perhaps I might even see you on Sunday or Wednesday in our group learning program. Have a lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. 
There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.